0: Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with young education professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting-edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. EdTalks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. Our speakers include Ko Kalia Yaw, author of The Late Homecomer, Among Family Memoir, with a talk entitled Among View of Public Education, and Dana Mortensen, CEO of World Savvy, with a talk entitled Globally Competent Teaching. This event was recorded before a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on April 6, 2015.
1: Uh, teachers are my first fans, and they're the reason I became, I became a writer, and they're the reason I tell the stories I do. So it's really a pleasure to be here. Bahuwa for inviting me. Um, but I'm gonna begin with a reading, actually. Tane came to my house, and we talked about what I'd be talking about. And this is not what I said I'd do, but I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Because <laughs> there's, you know, there's tremendous power in holding a microphone in your hands. So this is, um, this is from my forthcoming book. It's called The Song Poet. It's going to be out April of 2016 from Metropolitan Books. Our mother and father were talking about a Hmong woman they knew who was dating a white man. The white man and the Hmong woman had gone into a fight, and he had beaten her up badly. Doug and I grew quiet in our talk and started focusing on theirs. Our father said that the Hmong woman should have never been with a white man in the first place. It was dangerous to cross cultures and to pit a mong woman's small fist against that of a much larger white man's. I thought the conversation was interesting. Doe did not. Doe's book closed. She slammed it against the carpet. I watched as she got up and moved toward my parents. She pointed a finger at her father's face. She said, racist. Our father slept, Doe. The sound of flesh on flesh hung in the air. The force of his hand turned her head. In the seconds that it took for Doug to turn her head back toward him, my mother was in between them. Our mother and father hardly ever resorted to physical punishment in our home. When it happened, it was restricted to the occasional rubber band across the butt. Usually only when one child had purposely done something hurtful to another or something dangerous to themselves after a series of verbal warnings. There was a process in our family. We gathered as witnesses. It was a conversation. A parent asked, what part of you do you want the rubber band to hit? Do you know why I'm using the rubber band? Are you going to do that again? This time, there were no rules of engagement. Dao and I had stopped getting punished for our actions years ago. We were part of the adult world. We interpreted for our mother and father. We took care of the children. We had access to their bank accounts. We bought groceries. No one expected Doug to respond so fast to a conversation we were not part of. No one expected our father to respond so painfully to Doug's voice in our parents' talk. Before this point, education had always been a path full of light, the direct road to becoming doctors and lawyers. In the past, we had shared things we had learned from, to our mother and father about Christopher Columbus and slavery, the Civil War, and affirmative action. It had all made sense, the American story that we were entering, the place we were in. Never before, though, had the lessons in school penetrated so deeply and applied so emotionally in our home. The problem of education had entered our lives. No one had told us that education could change the way we felt about the world and the people in our lives, that it could give a person words to use and actions to take, not in support of the people who love us, but as a response to them. That education in America would make our father and our mother less educated in our eyes. Even then, I recognized my father's action for what it was. It wasn't an effort to discipline. It was an unmediated reflex, an instinctual response to those finger in his face, her one word, and all that it implied. You're ignorant, uneducated, And wrong. I came to America when I was six years old, July 27, 1987. I'd never been to school before because I, I didn't qualify to go to school in Bamyan Refugee Camp where I was born. I couldn't do this, and I couldn't do this, and there were lots of kids and not enough seats, so I wasn't in school. When we came to. St. Paul, Minnesota, we went to Battle Creek Elementary School to register, and a lady in a red reindeer sweater. I'll always remember because I'd never seen a reindeer before. (laughs) Um, You know, she sat us across from her and she said, say your ABCs. And I said, A, B, and C. And she said, say your ABCs. And I said, A, B, and C. That was all I knew. You know, when Dell was tested, she said every color was yellow and every English word ended with an S. I was placed into first grade, and she was placed into the second grade. A week after we were enrolled at Battle Creek Elementary School, we were kicked out. I was in the playground, I, was, I had a ball in my hands, and I was bouncing up and down. I'd never owned a ball before, i had only seen it on TV. Um, a bigger boy came, and he pushed me down, and he took the ball. And all I remember is my older sister, One of her legs shorter than the other because she had polio in the camps. I saw her running toward me, and then I saw her push the boy down, and she wasn't even up to his chin, but she was beating him up and yelling, why are you beating my sister? Why did you push her down? Why did you do that? The teachers came and they expelled us. They said that Battle Creek didn't have the teachers in place to teach kids like us. So we were sent to Ames Elementary School. We were there for a month. My dad went there and for parent-teacher conferences. The teacher said that we were in the same classroom because we were in, you know, there were all of these refugee kids. Um, But the teacher said, I've been there and that I was a good student. I didn't say anything but I was a good student. But they said that Dao wasn't a good student, that she hadn't been there all 30 days. But she had been. (laughs) She was sitting right beside me the whole time. My father decided to transfer us to... To North End Elementary School, a school that would change Doe's life forever because of a teacher named Mrs. Castagna, her third grade teacher with beautiful green eyes. Mrs. Castagna taught Doe how to piece together the English language and how to pull it together, to pull it apart. In third grade, Doe won the North End Elementary School spelling bee. She got fifty dollars. They asked her what she wanted to do with it and she said, I want to buy my father a pair of shoes that fit because he had only gotten his shoes from the church basement. So every time we went to parent-teacher conferences, my father's nice shoes would slap on the ground because they didn't fit. So he was always self-conscious, and that's what I did. She took my father to Kmart, and she bought him his first pair of nice shoes with her $50. In the back of my mind, I made myself a promise that one day it would be me, not Doug, who would buy something nice for our father because of, because of my education. But that didn't happen for a long time. I became what was called a selective mute. My mom and I were at KMart. My mom pointed to the ceilings and she said, I'm looking for the thing that makes the world glitter. She had a thick accent. The clerk did this and then walked away. And my mother and I stood there. My mother was far younger than I am now and I thought she was an incredibly beautiful woman and very brave. She kept on waiting, nobody came back. At some point, she started looking at her feet. And I decided that if the world we live in did not need to hear my mother and my father, then surely it didn't need to hear me. So the next day, I became a selective mute. At first, it felt like a rebellion. It felt like I was taking control of the situation. But slowly, the rust built up in my throat, and then I lost hold of the English language. Every time the teacher would say Kao Yang and I would whisper here, all the other kids would look and the silence, it grew all over me and it started holding me back and holding me down. I got through the same public schools by doing thumbs up and nodding. Every time somebody said, Are you okay? Every time somebody said, Do you understand something? That's what I did. So now, whenever I go to talks, I give talks and I do readings. If there are teachers, my teachers in the room, Inevitably, they weep because I have the same face I did as a kid. But they don't know my voice. I, was, I graduated from, from Harding High School, and I went on to Carleton College because Doug said that education was still the key and that if she was the first tier of the ladder, that, that I should be the second. So she went to Hamlin. She read somewhere that Carleton was the Harvard of the Midwest, and so she told me to apply, and I did. I remember what I wrote on my... my Um, My purpose statement for Carlton. I went to my cousin's green bedroom. The light was green. The walls are green She was the only person in the family with a computer and I typed I want to become a good person If Carlton believes that it can help me become a good person, then it's the right place for me. If it doesn't then it's not Um, And I was surprised when I got in I didn't use a lot of words um but then Carlton started making me feel sad for not speaking. I wouldn't talk in class. I would read and I would attend. But eventually a teacher took me aside, a professor, Rich Kaiser, and he said, you know, it's, you can't just consume knowledge. That's selfish. You're here because one day you're expected to become a producer of knowledge. The first time the idea that the things I had to say, that the life I was living, could become part of the stuff we were learning. Because all along the way, I hadn't learned anything about the Hmong, you know? When I learned about the Vietnam War, it was America and then the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese Army, there was no mention of the Hmong anywhere. I hadn't learned anything about what we were doing here. As a kid, people used to ask me, where are you from? And I'd whisper, Mongolia, because that sounded like Hmong. And I I knew that they were nomadic, and I knew that my parents had fled through the jungles of Laos, that they hadn't had time to build a home. So I'd whisper that, and eventually my cousin's um, brand, <laughs> my cousin got his citizenship. He changed his name to Bruce Lee. <laughs> so people would say, what are you? And I'd say, I'm Bruce Lee's cousin. <laughs> you know, that, that was how I went down. Um, but at Carleton, all of a sudden, I was supposed to become a producer of knowledge. I told my dad that I was gonna become a doctor, cause Doug said that she would become a lawyer, because my parents taught us that they said that every family needed a doctor and a lawyer to survive in America because lawyers can protect the rights that we've never had enough of. And doctors, you could heal what is broken in the human body. Everybody I knew was broken. All the adults in my life, there was shrapnel embedded in skin. In the heat of summer, my uncles don't wear you know, short sleeves because they're embarrassed. They don't have the words to explain the scars on their body. And I don't have the stories to tell either. And so I told my parents that I was going to go to Carleton to become a doctor. I was studying American studies, cross-cultural studies, and, women's ge- and women and gender studies because I thought it would be really important to becoming a good doctor. Um, but then my grandma died. Just, she died in Feb- on February 18, 2003, just a few months before my graduation from Carleton. Grandma had told me that education was the garden that i tilled in America and that one day we would reap the harvest together. And I started dreaming about her being at my graduation, how we'd walk on the sidewalks and how impressed she would be when I explained to her that the person who had designed them had designed them following natural patterns, that the, that the path was on the ground before the cement was laid. My grandma would love, I thought. But my grandma died just before I could harvest my garden. And so I started writing about her for a, a course Jane McDowell's um, Women and Gender Studies course. I wrote endlessly and I wrote long and I started writing about all the things that I wanted to remember about her. And then I started realizing that when we try really hard to remember someone, that's when we know how much we're forgetting. You know, I, I, I saw, my grandma only had a single tooth all my life with her. With that single tooth, we took down Jolly Rancher and ice cubes, we gnawed on bones, I love that tooth, but I forgot which side it was on, (laughs) you know? My grandma always told me that if nothing else in my life worked out, I could become an ear model because I have almost perfect ears. (laughs) Well, because as a little girl, she was chased by a tiger in the jungles of Laos and one of her earlobes was torn, so she never wore earrings. My grandma with her single tooth, um, when I really wanted braces and we couldn't afford them, she. She'd smile at me and say, is my smile not beautiful? On a hot summer day, an ice cream truck, I could hear it ring, all the kids running. I didn't have any money, she didn't have any money to give me. She'd spread sugar on my tongue and put an ice cube and tell me that that was sweet and cold coming together in the mouth of a child. I promised her that one day I would have a house and that in my house there would be a room and she wouldn't have to carry all of her stuff from the house of one son to the next. She could place them in that room in that house for her. I knew when she died that the promise would remain unfulfilled. But I started writing and I turned in the pages, and Jane McDowell said, Wow, I only wanted five. How come you're giving me 30? <laughs> and I said, because I didn't I don't know what to cut out. Um, and then I told my dad. My dad asked me one day, What are you doing? I said, I'm writing all a love letter to my grandma. And he said, If we dream in the right direction, we never wake up. The dream only always grows bigger. Never wake up. And so I fell in love with the dream. Instead of going to medical school, I told my mom and dad that I wanted to become a writer, that I wanted to tell the stories that matter to our lives, that the stories we lived were the stuff of which knowledge was made, the stuff that i have been yearning and hungry to hear and to learn. And my mom and dad, they looked at me and my mom said, It's not surprising, you've always loved stories. My dad, ever the song poet, said to me, if the sky that I live under can fall on me, if the earth that I walk on can throw me off, who would I be to stand in your way? And so I became a writer, thinking that all I needed to do was write books and then they would go into the world and then I I could live life. I didn't know that when you come from a people like me, Uh, A people that is new to the Rin language, because it wasn't until the 1950s that a Rin language was devised for my people, that you had to stand up and speak those words for the world to hear you. I didn't know that when you write, you write on paper, but that when you get an opportunity to to hold a microphone like this, to hold it up to your mouth, that you have an opportunity to write on the fabric of the human being. I didn't know then what I know now, that in order to become a writer, I would also have to become a teacher in the process. So that's what I am before you. I'm a young writer, I'm a young teacher, and I've taught all over the place, from, from Columbia University right back, right through Stanford University, at many places in between. And I've learned a lot of things. I've learned that if, if you can, you know, when you're talking, if people can hear you, you can also hear them talking about you. Um, audience members didn't know this, and I had to point it out many times in the beginning. <laughs> you know, especially in high schools, I hear people say, "Oh my God, she's so boring," and I say, "Oh, I can hear you. It's really hard to be up here. Can you please, you know, give me give me some support?" I had to ask for that support. I had to demand that support. You know, I've learned that no matter how good you are, no matter how well versed you are on a topic, no teacher can anticipate what a student needs to learn. That all we can do, all we can be, is be companions for the journey, the adventure that they're on. That we can only teach if we know that we have something to learn from that one student. If you're looking at a student and you don't know that you have anything to learn from them, you are not equipped to teach him or her. I've learned a lot of things, but I'll end with this, because I think my 20 minutes are up, soon, anyway. I never keep a watch, I rely on internal clock. My brother Maxwell. He, when he was five years old, he was. We were living in Andover, Minnesota, and he was going to Andover Elementary School. And um, he spoke with a thick. He spoke English with a thick accent. In school, he was speaking English with a thick accent, and so none of the kids wanted to play with him. And on the bus, no one wanted to sit with him. He usually sat by himself, but one day he, um, there, were no, there were no empty seats, so he saw, he said, a boy with beautiful blue eyes, and he went to sit with the boy, and the boy's eyes turned black, and the boy said, get up. There's a rule, you cannot, move on a, uh, you cannot stand up on a moving box. So Maxwell crouched all the way home. That day, I had been doing teacher trainings all day from, for the Anoka School District. I'd given them everything I had, my, whole, my heart, everything I had. Because I know that as a writer, I can't force you to participate in the reading experience. I can only inspire you to do so. I know as a public speaker, I can't force you to understand my words. I can only gift you with them. So I came home, and I was really tired, and I said, Max, how was school? And he told me what happened. I was so sad. The next day, he went to school, and he came back, and I said, Max, how was it? He looked at me and he said, "Gully, I sat by myself, but I didn't put my book bag on the seat. I left it on the ground in case one day a little boy or a little girl will sit beside me. That's why I'm here before you. Because of that little boy who keeps his book bag on the ground so that one day somebody will sit beside him. That's why we teach. We teach so that we can teach each other how to love, how to believe, how to open hearts, and how to open minds. And I have so much respect for the work that you're all about and the thinking that you do. That's all I have to give you. Thank you so much for having me.
2: I am delighted to be here talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Forgive me for occasionally bending over to change the slides because we have no clicker tonight. Um, I thought I'd start by giving you a little bit of context for um, why the imperative of teaching for global competence is so important to me and how this spark got ignited for me um, more than 13 years ago. Um, and it was really through something pretty basic that I think we can all relate to and that's a friendship. Um, so this is my friend Madiha. Um, I met Madiha in the year 2000 in New York City when we were both graduate students studying international affairs. and I was struck immediately, Uh, Madiha was born in Bangladesh, she grew up throughout the Mideast, she ended up in Singapore to attend high school, surrounded by peers from around the world. And from the moment I met her, I was struck by her effortlessly global worldview. She had this um, way of navigating new groups of people and cultures and events and places and could connect historical and contemporary issues so easily. She seemed so at home in the world. Um, And I was drawn to her immediately. And we were both the daughters of educators, and so we both shared this, um, this belief that education could function as the great leveler, that it was the bedrock of any thriving society. And so the, despite having very different upbringings, through the course of that year, Medea and I became quite close. And in the fall of our second year of graduate school, on September 12th, 2001, we woke up to a world that had been changed irrevocably from the acts of terrorism on 9-11. So as the world worked to mourn and grieve and lift one another up in the wake of that terrible tragedy, there was a darker narrative at play um, in New York City that was affecting people like my friend Madiha because she was Muslim. So this xenophobic backlash affected her in pretty deep ways. She was kicked in the shins while riding the bus. She was spit on on the subway. She was called a terrorist in public when people were driving by. And even though I had studied international issues and was very aware that discrimination existed, it was the first time in my life that I was in such close proximity to someone that I dearly loved in a city that we both loved, who was the subject of such intensely personal, hateful rage for her identity. And so while that made me very angry, it made Madiha empathetic. And she turned our conversations um, into contemplations about how is it that we develop our worldview? How do we come to know and understand ourselves in the context of the global world we live in? And we turned those conversations towards looking at the purpose of education. How is the world changing? And what does that mean about how we have to prepare for it? So the first thing that we considered was, what was the characteristics of that kind of change? And not obviously the world's been changing for some time, but what seemed to signify it and characterize it differently was the accelerating pace of that change. So my grandmother who passed away at age 77 when she was in grade school would have, um, would, have, would have learned that there was a population of two billion people and that there were 100 elements on the periodic table. And we've recently just passed the seven billion mark um, for global population and there are now 118 elements known on the periodic table. So this idea that the half-life of knowledge, that the pace of change and the acceleration of that is so different seems to characterize the space that we're living in. And two things seemed to be markers for what the future would hold. That change was a constant, and that global interconnectivity would also be a constant. So we moved to considering what that might mean. Um, And the three things that were really the anchors for understanding how was the world changing, that had some implication on teaching and learning, were pretty basic. The first was just who we are, our demography as a country. So this is the United States in 1970. It's 88% white and many of the ethnic and cultural groups that are now thriving in the US were too small to even be measured in census data. Flash forward 40 years and you look at 2010 and you see a pretty considerable shift. The white population declines to 75% of the total and you see other groups being represented in a more robust way. Now project forward to less than 40 years from now to what 2050 is anticipated to look like. You see that in my lifetime, The the white population drop goes from 88% to 47%, and for the first time, no ethnic or cultural group in this country will comprise a majority. So what does that mean about how we are prepared to live and work together in these new communities that are characterized by that diversity? What are the implications of that? And a more local way of looking at it outside the national scene is in the St. Paul Public Schools. So this is 2010 data, but the the, the current diversity that we see and experience in St. Paul Public Schools exceeds that that we're even imagining that will happen in 2042. So we're already there in so many local communities that are globally diverse. There's 126 languages spoken in the St. Paul Public Schools And there has been a 200, there was a 240% increase in the number of English language learning students from 1990 to 2010. And this diversity, make no mistake, is a benefit, it's an asset. We've long known that diversity contributes to technological advance, it spurs innovation in the arts, it spurs cultural innovation, but recently we're finding that places that are more open to cultural diversity and geographic proximity are also contributing and spurring economic development. Simply put, diversity leads to economic development and homogeneity slows it down. But make no mistake, this is also something that will challenge us as we consider what this new, more diverse landscape means for getting along and for being productive to solve community challenges together. The second thing we thought about that anchored our understanding of the changing world was really how do we work? What does workforce preparation look like? What's the reality professionally that we're looking at? So it's not a secret that mom and pop to multinational now are connected inextricably linked to a global economy. One in five jobs in the United States is now tied directly to international trade. And most states across the US have experienced a triple digit percentage increase in that statistic in the last two decades alone. So this changes everything about business. It changes your consumer base, it changes your employees, it changes your supply chain. Um, There's an entirely new way of thinking about business. So now business leaders, when questioned what workforce readiness should look like, have a totally different answer than they used to have. Technical knowledge is not as highly prized as it once was. The capacity, what graduates do with that knowledge, how they're able to think creatively and critically and apply that to new situations in a constantly changing environment has a premium when you're looking for employment. So whether you're a fan or not of, oops, whether you're a fan or not of Coca-Cola and their practices and values, um, they are emblematic of this global interconnectivity within the business realm. So, most of the companies on the S and P 500 in the U.S. um, have just shy of 50 percent of their profits are generated abroad. Coca-Cola is the exception; has more than 80 percent generated abroad, and an even greater percent of their employees are um, foreign employees. They have more operations; they have operations in more countries than there are UN member states in 206 countries. So when asked recently what challenges the CEO of Coca-Cola anticipates and currently deals with, he focused on the idea that the pipeline of American graduates that had the global knowledge, the cultural competency, and the capacity to interact across borders effectively to execute on their work was so limited. It was a serious problem. And further, that beyond just training for those jobs in this changing landscape, the idea that employees needed to be prepared to be retrained in a short period of time because change was now the common denominator across the business community. And that employees that he he was looking for needed to not only be able to anticipate change, but to adapt to it and to lead through it and to do all of that in a global context. So the next thing that we considered was what our problems were and would be as the future progressed in this more global environment. And what we found to be true was that where there were an increasing number of challenges that had both global causes and global consequences. There wasn't one country or individual responsible for it, nor one country or individual that could solve it. And they seemed to be bonded by their complexity and interconnectivity. So the example I'll give is uh, that of Bangladesh, which is where Madiha, my co-founder is from, Bangladesh is a country in South Asia that's roughly, geographically, the size of the state of Iowa. But it has the population that's equal to half the population of the entire United States of America, 150 million people. By 2050, it's estimated 17% of Bangladesh will be underwater. and In the next 35 years, an estimated 50 million people will be displaced, losing their homes, their livelihoods, their farmland. So for a moment, I want you to imagine moving half the population of the United States into the state of Iowa and then flooding 20% of it. The scope and severity of a refugee crisis of that that magnitude in Bangladesh is really mind-blowing. But the reality is those kinds of problems are increasingly what are going to characterize what we encounter in this century. They're problems that have global causes and global consequences. No one country caused climate change and no one country can solve it alone. And so this unprecedented level of cooperation is what is the new norm. So knowing that the world was headed for this more global reality, we started to contemplate, surely we're ready. What does it look like? Well, how are we preparing the next generation to be able to anticipate how to succeed, how to thrive, how to survive 10 and 20 and 50 years from now? It won't surprise many people in this room who have deep expertise in education that by and large for the last 100 years we've had an industrial schooling model. The world has changed at a pretty rapid pace, particularly in the last few decades and education has not kept pace in a mainstream way. And there's a few things that characterize that. We still teach subjects in rigid disciplines even though almost every problem you'll encounter in the real world or the things that I describe require interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary thinking to solve them. We still have basically the same structure for learning, students sitting in desks looking up at a teacher that delivers content, the same length of the school day, the same length of the school year. We have two new tools, new technological tools, but they're often applied to the same structure and limit the capacity to deeply engage students in learning through technology. And finally, we've been focused on testing, and what we're measuring isn't really what matters to thrive in that new environment what we need are not good test takers, we need good problem solvers and engaged learners who are ready for the next generation. So knowing that this was the reality of the school system, Madiha and I in 2002 said, well what would it look like to reimagine that system? What is it if the purpose of education is to prepare students to really thrive? to be prepared to be engaged citizens in our democracy, to be productive members of a workforce, to be problem solvers that could address local and global issues that affected people, places, stakeholders around the world. What would that look like? So we founded, 2000, we founded World Savvy in 2002 to address that. And our answer was global competence the ability for every student, regardless of where they learn, to acquire the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to thrive in an interconnected global society. So we thought a lot about the component parts of that. Chief among them were values and attitudes. So not just an openness to new ideas and ways of thinking, but a desire to engage others authentically. Our self-awareness about our identity and our culture. Deep value for multiple perspectives. Comfort with ambiguity and change and unfamiliar situations. Continuous reflection. Questioning our prevailing assumptions and being adaptive. And finally, empathy and humility. We thought a lot about the skills that comprise global competence. Investigating the world, framing questions and driving further inquiry. Recognizing and articulating and then applying that understanding of new perspectives to decision making and thinking inclusive dialogue and active listening, resiliency, critical thinking. So when we thought about the values and attitudes and skills that we were looking to develop, they naturally lead to this idea of how would you want a globally competent graduate to behave? What does this world require us to do? So not only to value multiple perspectives, but to know when they're absent in a room, seek them out and apply them to the decisions that you're making and the problems that you're solving. Basing your opinions informed by exploration and evidence. Shared responsibility, focusing not only on the rights you have as a global citizen but the responsibility that's therefore incumbent upon you to take action, to improve conditions, and approaching things in a, collaborative, um, in a collaborative manner to problem solve. So for a moment, you can think about how this might apply, how this might play out in a classroom, in a K-12 classroom that's teaching for global competence. So, what if students were allowed to be the drivers of learning? They could learn in diverse teams collaboratively, tackle complex problems in an interdisciplinary way, and be encouraged to focus on solutions. And along the way, we're encouraged to embrace failure as a part of that learning process. What if students had real agency in learning? They had voice and choice in choosing the content, the what and the how of how they learned, and then being able to be self directed and move themselves through a learning experience that was more relevant to their lives. What if we could do more to support teachers to be able to support that journey and help students navigate ambiguity, to find their path to make real-world learning sticky and relevant and related to what's personal and meaningful to students? And finally, what if we measured what really mattered, what we know is going to be useful in the workplace, in, in, um, in our communities, and as problem solvers globally? And this might seem like an insane or very far off notion, but I want to use a case study that's gotten a lot of press over the last couple of decades, and that's of Finland. Um, so, by show of hands, how many of you have read a lot about what Finland is doing in this? OK, great. So, we've got a friendly audience for that. Um, so, Finland, over the last, about 40 years ago, enacted education reform that started to really move away from the more Western view of how to um, a test driven. Um, centralized system of looking at education and went back to sort of a basic notion of how do you prepare kids for the world? What do they actually need to be prepared? And two years ago began to enact one of the most radical um, initiatives in education reform that basically did away with teaching by subject to transition to teaching by topic, something they call phenomena teaching. So essentially the notion was how does the world work? What do students need to be prepared for and how do we align our teaching and learning to, be, um, to prepare them for that? So for instance, a student might, might learn cafeteria services as a vocational um, element of what they're learning that includes math and communication and writing and foreign language to develop the ability to work with customers from lots of places. Or in a more academic pursuit, they might learn about the European Union by learning economics and geography and history. Rather than separating these things, bringing them together in a multidisciplinary way. And they're beginning to scrap even the structures that exist in what we traditionally think of as a K-12 environment. So rather than having students sitting in rows and looking up at the front of the room, they have them working in small teams collaboratively, practicing their communication skills, tackling complex problems, driving their own learning by asking their own questions. Finland has a lot of things too that shake up our traditional assumptions of what should be the foundation, what are the elements that would set a tone for effective K-12 reform. And these are snapshots of some of them that you may be familiar with. One is that children start school at age seven and aren't tested for the first six years of their education. The first standardized test they're exposed to is mandatory at age 16. Students rarely take exams and don't have much homework until they're in their teens. And all children are taught in the same classroom. So this notion of gifted and remedial is scrapped in the service of diverse learners together in a room. And surprisingly, they have this, one of the smallest, what we would call achievement gaps in the world. Finland has the same amount of teachers as New York City, but far fewer students, 600,000 versus 1.1 million. So teachers have fewer students, but they also have more time. They have two hours of professional development a week and only four hours of teaching a day. So they're encouraged and promoted to learn more and to engage and reflect and and evolve as they are are confronted with new situations. And finally, they're selected from the top 10% of graduates, are given master's degrees, and they effectively have the same prestige and respect as doctors or lawyers. So I know that this might seem outrageous, that some of the conditions and the context, and I would never recommend that wholesale, you take the the phenomena happening in Finland and drop it into the US education system, but it's there as an idea to suggest that with the world changing in the way that it is, and knowing that we are failing to truly prepare students for that reality, that large-scale change is possible, and that a rethinking of how we, we design thinking, learning, and teaching in this era is really required. Because when we think about what the job and the purpose of education is now, we don't need to train students to solve the problems we know that currently exist. We need them to be trained to solve problems we don't yet have the imagination to conjure. And teaching and learning for global competence is a pathway to doing that. So thank you very much.
0: Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Young Education Professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos, please visit achievempls.org/edtalksmn.